So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Now, look, before we get into anything, we have to talk about the golf yesterday. Sawgrass, I was watching it last night. You were commentating, co-commentating last night. It must have been great to see fans at a tournament. And obviously, the course is spectacular. What was the experience like? Yeah, well, you know what? It's, I've, I've done a few now over here in America in the last few weeks, and concession a few weeks ago was the same. Florida's had a very different attitude towards, uh, you know, this horrible virus than, than certainly the UK and Ireland have done. It's remained open. They haven't closed schools. They haven't closed golf courses. They haven't closed gyms. They haven't closed shops. Um, they've remained open and put the onus on people to take care of themselves, uh, you know, rather than the UK and Ireland where, you know, the government stepped in and, and, and closed everything down. So it's, it's, it's a very different life over here. Um, and, and, and what they've done now is slowly they're reintroducing crowds. It's the one thing they did ban was, was groups of people gathering, but slowly they're, they're letting, I think, five and 10,000 people come back on to these bigger sporting events, not just golf, but other events as well. Um, so, yeah, that was great. It was great to see. We saw it in Bay Hill. We saw it in concession the week before. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we're on the right road here, guys, because it's been a long, long road in lockdown. Not off, not it has. Off. It's been an interesting year. And I think, look, that today it's great to have you on the podcast. We first met you, Paul. I think it was down at Canary Wharf at a tailor-made SLDR lunch. I'm trying to think when that was. It must have been five years ago at least. Yeah, and we yeah. played with you at Castle Stewart as well in the uh, the Scottish um, Scottish Open Pro Am, which was fantastic. Yeah, you so played much... better than me, I remember. I don't think I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Look, there's so much we can talk we can talk about today, Paul. We'd love to go into a few different things, but we're going to kick off with the Ryder Cup if that's okay. You had three consecutive victories. 2002, 2004, and 2006 as a player in the Ryder Cup. What did you enjoy most about playing in the in the Ryder Cup? Oh, that's an easy answer. It's the camaraderie, um, the camaraderie of the other players. Um, uh, I've always been a team guy. Growing up in Ireland, I wasn't a golfer. I wasn't into individual sports. I played golf during the summer for three months every year, and. Uh, the fun for me was, was, was playing Gaelic football and hurling and soccer at a young age, up to the age of 19. And Gaelic football in particular, I was very good at. Now, I'm probably four handicap at golf at, at the age of 19. And the last thing I want to do is, is be a professional golfer. And even on my radar, uh, I was going to be a Gaelic footballer. And, and so being part of a dressing room, 15 players on the team and another five subs and all the guys around it. You know, I'm used to being in groups of, of people on a team of 20, 25. That's, that was kind of what I did, all, all, all that I did up to the age of 19. And that's never left me. So the opportunity to play in team events when that did arise in, uh, in golf was something that uh, I really enjoyed. And I seemed to excel in, you know, all my performances, whether it be, you know, won the World Cup at Podrick in 97, played in three Ryder Cups, Royal Trophy, Seve Trophies. I believe I played in 14 teams and, and we won 13 out of the 14. I was involved right. in them. So it, it was, uh, it was uh, it, you know, I've, I've always seemed to excel and be part of it. But the old saying, and absolutely true, you're only as good as your teammates. And, and I was very lucky to come through a period right through the middle of, of, of my career where we had such brilliant players, you know, um, you know, Westwood, Darren, you know, I got the end of Woozy and Langer, um, part of the teams, you know, and, and just, just kind of be involved. Uh, and as that transition from era to era went on and still be in the middle of it, uh, you know, that, that, that's what made the success uh, so good. And did you prefer singles or pairs? Did you have a preference? I preferred pairs. I, I found singles back to the individual again on your own. Singles is a very lonely place. We talk about that a lot going into the singles as a backroom team in the Ryder Cup. It's a very lonely place. You know, the first two days are amazing. And all the practice rounds are amazing because you've got your teammate, you've got your teammate's caddy, you've got the vice captain normally following, you, you know, and, and it's a kind of, you know, you're very much part of a, a team. And then all of a sudden that's all stripped away on Saturday night and everybody's back into that individual mindset of just you and your caddy back in again on Sunday. So that's an important adjustment to make, certainly if you're part of the backroom team. Um, it's something we accentuate a lot in Europe on a Saturday night is, is how to switch that mindset and to remember that it's a very lonely place come the singles on Sunday. Yeah, definitely. And let's go to, let's talk about 2002 Belfry. Um, what point were you aware that you had a chance to, to win for, for Team Europe? And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that last winning put as well. Uh, well, I kind of I knew all along. I mean, when you're put out at number nine, like I was on, on the Sunday, you, you know that it's likely going to come down around about uh, your, your match, you know, one way or the other. Um, so you kind of know that. Um, I was well prepared. I mean, that was my first Ryder Cup. And, and I give a lot of credit here to, to the captain, um, 
Sam Torrance, uh, how I was prepared for that. And I also give a lot of credit to Jesper Parnovic, who was on that team, because we had a meeting, just going back to the previous point, uh, we had a meeting on the Saturday night in, 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 uh, in Sam's room. And, and it was very different back then compared to what it is now. There's no defined team meeting room like there is now with podiums and all the stuff in it. Um, back then, it was in Sam's bedroom. Uh, we were lying on Sam's bed. <laughs> His wife, Suzanne, was in the bathroom getting ready to go out that night, and, uh, obviously with the door closed and doing her thing. And, and we, there was 12 guys uh, sitting and the vice captains uh, lying, lounging across his suite in the belfry uh, on the floor and on the bed. And, and, and he held his meeting there. And, and that was on a Saturday night. And, and as, we, um, as, we, uh, as we came to uh, the end of the meeting, which wasn't a long meeting, uh, and he talked a lot about the switch of uh, back into the single mindset the next day, uh, Jesper Parnovic said something really poignant that I've never forgotten. He said, look, uh, it's a very lonely place, particularly for the rookies uh, tomorrow. Be ready for this adjustment. Uh, we're going out. You're going to be going out at the end of the field. You know, many of us were going out at the end of the field. And it's easy to get swayed. You've already played the first two days. You've had 20,000 people following every game you've played so far. There's only been four matches on the golf course. It's been an amazing, wild, noisy atmosphere. When you go out tomorrow at the end of the field in the singles as a rookie, you'll have virtually nobody watching you. Everybody's going to be following the top games at that time. And it's easy to disconnect um, and it's easy to make a few mistakes early on and to get overawed by the fact that there's no atmosphere. Um, but you just got to hang in and realize that as the game goes on um, and the day goes on, um, you're, you know, the crowds, those games are finished and the crowds will start moving back and then you will be the center of attention again. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened with me. I was playing Jim Furyk. I remember coming to the third hole, par five, and I was waiting for Jim to hit his pitch shot in from about 80 yards. I looked behind the green, whereas the night before I played in the last game on the course with Darren and there was some, I don't guess, 30,000 people following that game. It was the only last game on the course. So to go from that atmosphere to the following day when I'm playing gym on the third and I counted there was four people behind the green, four, four people watching. Uh, and, and that was like all of a sudden my stomach dropped and that eerie feeling of loneliness came in. And then it was like, then I remembered what Jesper said and, and I was able to switch in. And, no, no, this has got to hang in. you got to hang in, hang in this. It'll change. And, and, you know, that's what happened. And, and I brought that learning lesson certainly through all of my Ryder Cup experiences when I played and, and make sure the, the rookies knew about it and, and took what Jesper said and, and, and gave them that insight. And, and then obviously when I was captain, I made a very big deal of it to the, uh, to the, uh, to the, to the, to the uh, rookies, particularly when they were going out on a Sunday. Do you know what? We're going to get onto that captaincy for sure. I have to ask about the putt though. I mean, you know, for you to not put in, I mean, first of all, how many times have you watched it back? <laughs> do you watch it every morning when you wake up? Um, but, but, but how do you compose yourself knowing that you're walking at the 18th and obviously you've got a chance to actually win that winning point? Yeah, you know, I feel very lucky for a start. I feel really lucky that I had this opportunity and this thing happened to me because we all know this game. And that was my moment in the spotlight. And that was my start time to shine. And we all know what this game is like. You can either succumb to the nerves or you can hit a really good putt that doesn't go in or you can hit a bad putt that doesn't, you know, all kinds of different scenarios could have happened. I feel very fortunate that, uh, you know, I happened to hit a great putt and it went right in the middle of the hole and it ended up being the winning putt. Um, but what I remember most of it, again, it was the mindset. Uh, I'd hold a good putt on 17 to go all square in the match uh, for a birdie. And, and um, I'd hit a really poor second shot with a three iron and hooked it left of the green. Uh, it was a tough shot. Wind was off the right, three iron. Um, and I, I hit, it was okay. It wasn't a horrendous shot. It, was a, it started at the pin and then drew, and I drew in the wind and kicked left of the green left. So as I'm walking up to the, up to the uh, green, uh, Sam Torrance was, was leaning with his arms crossed with his <laughs> massive beam and smile on the bridge as I, as I walked across. And, and he kind of disarmed me. He took away that tension. The body language that he showed me as captain is like, this is not the most important thing in the world, Paul. You know, there was no sense of uh, worry on his face. There was no sense of um, anguish on his face or intensity or anxiety. It was basically, um, isn't this fun? Uh, and that's what he, that's, that's what he, the, the attitude he had all week long as a captain. And I certainly learned a lot from him on that and tried to bring that forward myself. And Ever, ever since afterwards and Sam was one of my vice captains and you know anytime I refer to him I, I, even now I always say happiest guy in the room and that's where Sam Torrance was as a Ryder Cup player always had this beaming smile on his face 
His body language was fabulous. He always enjoyed what he did. And, and that transfers over to the players. And, and he kind of disarmed any anxiety I might have felt there. And, and, and he put his arm on my shoulders and walked across the bridge. And he said, uh, do this for me. Do this for your teammates. You're ready. And, and, and you know, up and down will win the right cup. And, and rather than feeling, oh, my God, I felt the other way. I felt so empowered. And it's like, oh, you know, I can't wait for this, relishing this opportunity. Did I know I was going to hold a putt? No. But I knew I was going to hit a great pump. Um, and, and carrying forward the momentum of a great putt that I hold on 17 into 18 was significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I was going to hit a great putt. And it was a big breaking putt. It had about three, three balls from left to right. And we know that 18th green in the Belfry, it's got a big breaker. I hit a really good chip, actually, to go get it where I did. And, and I, just one of those putts, you know, I absolutely nailed it. I hit it right out of the middle of the putt. As I looked up, it was like two foot from the hole, and I couldn't miss. It was tracking in beautifully. Um, and, and right in the middle it went. So I feel, yeah, I feel very, very lucky and very privileged that I was fortunate enough to hit such a fabulous putt at the right time, and I had read it right, because <laughs> you can hit a great putt, as we all know, and, and you misread it. Just, just, just listening to you there, Paul, as well, you mentioned mindset, and you've mentioned a couple of times the things that you were saying to yourself. Now, the majority of, of our listeners are, are amateur golfers, and what we can't see from them is their positive or their negative self-talk. How important is that for you? I suppose in your career, how, how important is it for you to have that positive self-talk um, over the right moments, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's something that I've learned. I love to be doing it again, you know. I love to do it again with what I have now and the knowledge that I have now. And, and, and I'm a great believer. I'm a great believer, and not just in golf, but particularly in golf, of simplicity, not complexity. And I'm a great believer that you know, an empty mind um, and, and a passionate mind so that you got to love what you're doing and relish in what you're doing. That's the perfect mindset to be in. Four or five things and in intensity, which I was too often in my career worrying too much and intense and trying to be perfect in so many different ways. That's not a good mindset to be with a golfer. And that's why Dustin Johnson has a great mindset for golf. Now, it might be a mindset that you want to put him on a political analysis program, but it's a great mindset for golf because that's his natural state of being. You know, not a lot goes through. He sees golf, life and golf in a very simple way, and it's one of the reasons for his great success. He had a poor, really poor weekend by his standards last week, but you know what? He'll have forgotten about it today. Mm-hmm. Claude Harmon told me a great story last week. Uh, uh, I, I, Claude has great talent story. You ever get a chance to be around Claude? He's got the best stories. And... and uh, he told me a, a great story about this is just give you an insight into DJ. So last year in one tournament, he, when he was on this great run that he's been on, he, he shot 30 under or something in one tournament, blew the field away. I mean, it was amazing golf. And two days later, he came down to see Claude uh, and uh, Claude was with another client doing some putting. And next of all, uh, DJ is pitched up, try out the balls. He's hitting some balls. He's warming up. And um, next of all, he, he puts the arm up to Claude and he calls Claude off the putting green down to Floridian here in, in, in Palm Beach. So, uh, Claude's excuse me, just give me a couple of minutes. See, something's up with DJ. I just want to check with him. So he goes over, the track man was up, the balls were out, and he was, he'd gone through his wedges. And, and he goes, Hey, dude, um, what was I working on again last week? <laughs> he had completely forgotten 48 hours, having shot a record 30 under two days before, <laughs> what his swing keys were. Brilliant. So, you know, that kind of positives. And, and, and Claude is just shaking his head. Remember, we were doing this, DJ. We were working on this in the range every day before you went out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, dude. That, that's all. That's all I want. Just want to check on that. So you know that that works in a lot of ways. You know, when you have a bad day, to be able to flush it away, uh, and when you have a good day, you got to write it down so you remember. Uh, so that's the kind. I'm a great believer in that, and and, and I think a happy golfer and a golfer who is um, enjoying what he's doing um, and passionate about what he's doing, and that's why I absolutely love where Bryson is at the moment. Uh, I know he, he's a very complex guy, but I, I, I really see something really special in this guy that I haven't seen since Tiger Woods. Yeah, it, it is. It's impressive what he's doing now, isn't it? And it's, it's actually interesting the last couple of weeks, obviously watching him and Lee battle it out together. And obviously both of them didn't prevail yesterday or none of them prevailed yesterday. But it is interesting how he stretched everybody's mindset, even to the point where Rory's talking about him trying to hit the golf ball further. So if you've got someone like Rory, who already hits the ball miles, is thinking about doing even more. He's definitely making people think about things. Yeah, he's an outlier. Um, he's a pioneer. Um, and what's really important is he's, he, he, he absolutely loves what he's doing. Mm. Um, and he really believes in what he's doing. Um, and, and 
I really do think that this guy, I've never seen drive since Tiger Woods. That's what makes him so special. It's not just the fact that he hits the ball a long way. We've seen that before. It's not just the fact that he's a great arm player and he puts very well and he looks at things differently. The fact that he's got this motor inside of him of passion for what he's doing uh, and ambition, and it's so raw. As I say, when I say I, ha I haven't seen anybody since him, it's that that I see, not necessarily the golf. It's, it's the passion and drive to be something different uh, and to rewrite and prove so many people wrong that there's another way of playing this game. Uh, and, and if that passion is sustained um, over the next decade and hopefully he stays cleared of injuries, I really do think that he's going to be absolutely phenomenal and the most dominant player in the game. Yeah. Yeah, well, it'll yeah, be interesting to see, won't it? It will be interesting. Let, let's get on to a little bit of your captaincy because we have to talk about that as well because I think a lot of people in 2014 when when you obviously, when you won, when you'd won the tournament, won the Ryder Cup, it was like, oh, everything about how Paul did this was great. But I know one of the big driving forces behind this, and I've heard you say this, was about going out there with the players and having fun. And that's actually, yeah. so to just go a little bit deeper on that, if you could, please, how did, how did that work so well? Yeah, I mean, that was, that's the point that I've, I've been making the last few points as well. I really do feel that a simple mind, um, when there's clarity, you know, how I saw the job, to be quite honest, I mean, and I was painted afterwards as this marginal gains, no stone unturned, everything was looked at. But I didn't see it that way. I, I just saw some big principles and I followed the big principles. Uh, I remember back in the 2010 Ryder Cup, um, I was a vice captain of Monty. And I remember going to the press conference. I was go to the press conference and kind of hide down the back of the American team, not not ours just to hear their psyche and where they're at it was always good for my to kind of know where to find it so you could kind of guess where they're going when you're part of the backroom team not when I was a player but when I was part of the backroom team and, and I remember being at a Corey Pavin's press conference and um, somebody asked him Corey what advice have you got from you know other people from other sports and coaches in other sports and he said um, uh, one of the football coaches it might have been Belichick I don't know who it was but it was one of the big football coaches he said well he gave me a great great advice he said always remember Corey to make the big thing the big thing um, and I took that and I thought, wow, that's so insightful because this idea of marginal gains and, and worrying so much about smaller things instead of looking at the big thing. And, and, you know, we can take that to golf. You know, the big thing in golf, as we know, is a score. You know, let's never get away from what we're trying to do in golf, which is shoot a score. Uh, you know, and how are you going to go about shooting a score? Well, you've got to have a great short game. You can't have a, you can't be brilliant tee to green um, every single day. You have to be a really good putter and you have to be a really good chipper and let's, you know, put a lot, why are we not putting more attention on it? So it, that, that's what I mean. Rather than worrying about, you know, an extra thing that you're doing in the gym that's going to give you an extra half a yard or so or a yard or so, which is, you know, where Rory went to. He went on, on, on that track and the mistake that he's made. And, you know, I've made that mistake many times in my career and, and, and can relate to it because, you know, anybody who's been a professional golfer, well, that's what we do. We, 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 sometimes we lose sight of the big picture. So my captaincy was very much about the big picture. And, and, and I took what... The elements of um, and fundamentals of my experience of when I was successfully part of a team, and, and I wanted to identify those and bring them forward. I call it the template, um, and, and I wanted to bring those fundamentals forward and, and 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 do it again. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we were winning Ryder Cups, and I was looking to be riding shotgun, and a lot of those wins, and 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 you know, I think we'd won. I'd won five Ryder Cups, three as a player and two as a vice captain before my captaincy. So. It was identifying that. And one of the keys that came out, the number one key, was that element of fun. Mm -hmm. We have so much crack behind the scenes in the team. We really do. I mean, you know, guys like, like Lee uh, is a perfect example. Darren, you know, Jimenez, um, you know, even Monty, um, Sergio. I mean, so much fun, so much banter, so much slagging, so much crack. And that ambience of fun, you know, it creates a platform for the players to go and express themselves. When you layer them in with a lot of expectation and layer them in with a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry and you're exponing a lot of worry as a captain, you know, you're stifling the players. And my job was not to stifle them. My job was to take away that expectation, was to create a platform for them, for them to go out on a golf course and, and express themselves and be free and enjoy what they're doing because I knew they would play their best golf if they did that. And, and that's what I did more than anything else. And that's why I picked very carefully who my vice captains were. I want the guys that were well-respected and fun behind the scenes um, and, and create that ambience. And, and I did a number of things every night, um, you know, for the wives as well as the players and, and you know, created a really relaxed atmosphere. Um, now, of course, that's not dismissing 
um, in, when it comes to the pairings and, and, you know, all of that kind of thing. There was a time to put the foot down and there was a time to do this, but it was also a time to, to step back and, and, and have a bit of fun and create that, as I say, to create that platform. Uh, because, and then when the players get out on the golf course, that's when I step back. I never got involved. I got involved once uh, because I had to, uh, with Rory, um, uh, with a situation where, where Sergio was going to play with him and I just had to get to him. But I made a comment to the, to the, to the caddies on the Monday night when I had a separate meeting for the caddies and I said, I will not approach any player at any stage during the week when we're on the golf course. And if I do, if there's some particular reason I have to, I will come to the caddy first and ask for your permission and you tell me when is the right time to go and speak to the player. Because I did not see my job as telling Rory, this is a five iron Rory or the guy in front missed this left. Be careful, don't miss it there, it's dead. Or be careful, this putt breaks more. No, no, guy's the best player in the world. He's got a caddy who's with him week in, week out. Who am I to come in and then infiltrate that incredible dynamic? Same with every player and every caddy. And that's my point I made. I will not get involved in the dynamic that you have with your caddy. That's the reason you're here is because you have a brilliant dynamic on a one-to-one. I'm not getting involved. And I also made the point to them too. And, you know, the last thing I want to see in the first green in the four ball is four, uh, two players reading, reading, the, reading, the, reading the putt and two caddies reading the putt. And then the vice captain maybe having a, having a bit of a look as well. And I mean, no, you know, this is all about the simplicity. What you do on a week-to-week basis, let's keep this simple. Let's not complicate it. Um, and, and, and that's what I did more than anything. It was, it was getting out of the way, creating a platform and then getting out of the way. Yeah, makes sense. And they, they obviously, they can trust you for that as well, can't they? There's a full trust behind them. But as far as that trust goes, there's, a, there's almost like an element of warming up though, isn't there, for you as the captain, especially in the year of the Ryder Cup, so 2014 season leading up to that. Obviously, that's when you're looking at who your wild cards would be. That's looking at who your pairings might be. How did you go about that process? So what were the key things that you felt worked really well in that process of warming those players up? Well, in terms of formulating the team and formulating the strategy, that started two years previously. Uh, I, um, and again, going back to the thing about the big thing being the big thing. Um, I'm a great believer in horses for courses. Um, it's something I've really learned a lot over the years. Um, even now into my commentary, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this golf course, I'm assessing it, I'm seeing what, what, what players got the skill set to be really comfortable on this golf course and it's going to play into his hands. Um, that's again goes back to Bryce and what makes him so impressive is that golf course did not suit him last week and yet he was nearly there winning the tournament this is a guy who can sit different exams so what I did was when I became captain I employed for, I was the first guy to employ a full time statistics team uh, I employed um, a team called strokeaverage.com uh, Chris was the guy who ran that in particular Chris and John and what I, the first job was uh, because statisticians can you know bamboozle your head with all kinds of information if you let them so my, my job to him always in every meeting I have with him was I want a one-pager. I don't want a 10-pager. I want a one-pager and you've only got 15 minutes to talk to me because the problem is the more they talk, the more they can, you know, and I, I didn't want to get sidetracked. So uh, I said, right, guys, what the first thing we need to do, this is just after I became captain uh, and I got the budget and paid them to be the full-time behind-the-scenes statistics teams over the next following years to follow the players and follow the stats. But the question is, what were we going to follow? wasn't just following who was the best player. I wanted to follow the stats that were applicable to the test that Ben Eagles was going to be. So what I did then was we had 10 years of playing Johnny Walker at that golf course. So the first thing they had to do was dive into the last 10 years of everybody who finished in the top 10 and bring me out the correlations. What are the correlations? Have they played par fives well? Have they played par threes well? Are they big hitters? Are they short hitters? Um, are they good iron players? You know, what is the key fundamentals to playing this golf course? I don't care about playing Augusta. I don't care about playing, you know, whatever else. I'm interested in the guys who are going to be suited to this and maybe gnarly weather in September. Um, and, and that's kind of what I had in the background. And as, it, as the team was, was, was formulating, I was starting to think of pairings based on, on the golf course. So moving on to the golf course then, as we got closer to the Ryder Cup, I'm looking at alternate shot and the foursomes in particular, and I'm thinking there's four par fives. And par fives was one of the keys that came out. Anybody who played the par fives well won the tournament. That's not always the case, but it was the case there. And he, they dominated the par fives. So attacking the par fives is going to be key. And then when I looked at the par fives, three of the par fives were even numbers. And also we had a drive with par four to 14, which is also an even number. Right? So that was really interesting. So now I've got four out of five holes where big hitting is a big important factor. So if you look at all my pairings um, in the foursomes, I had a big, pick, big hitter in each of those pairings. So they would drive on the even numbers. 
So, you know, Victor and Graham, for example, as well as other reasons to try to put them together. But, you know, when I explained to Graham, I said, Graham, look, on this second tee, I got him at the Irish book, a second tee, you know, there's your average driving distance. Victor's not going to get home with a three wood over water from your tee shot. But if you let Victor drive, you know, you are getting home in two. And, you know, when, when you give that kind of logic to the players, um, you know, to see it, okay. And again, it's simplicity. And then it's standing back and letting them do their thing. And, and that's what we did. So, so the, the pairings were formulated, not so much on personality, but more on being suited to the golf course and sitting this exam. Yeah, love it. And, and what, in terms of the, the, the vice captain, um, how important is that role? And what, I suppose, what's their job in terms of supporting you? What are the key roles that they do? Well, the main role they do um, is, is, you know, they're an amplification, amplification of, of my, my views, you know, what we say at team meetings. Um, so, you know, when they're speaking to the players, they're on message of, you know, what our view is. And we had five big challenges we represented in images around, around the, the inside of our team rooms and, you know, in the corridors going to the hotel rooms and all that. We had a big section of the hotel cordon off that was all ours. So, so there's that, obviously, you know, loyalty to me and as a captain and loyalty to the message that we have as the team. That's, the mo- that's first. Secondly, that I can really trust them, um, that they're not going to go off message. Um, and I was very careful who, who I chose and guys that I knew very well and guys that I'd seen in that environment who performed really well in the past. Um, and then the third thing, and, and probably the most important, well, that's not most important because trust is the most important, but um, one of the really important things is if you picture, let's take soccer terms, Guardiola, Alex Ferguson, David Moyes, I'm a West Ham fan, uh, is looking, looking at, a, at a match and his coaches are with him and they're all watching the one arena. It's all happening. So they're all watching the same thing. In a Ryder Cup, as you know, there's four matches in the first two days going on all at the same time. As a captain, I, as a player, I hated when a captain would turn up for a hole or two, fly off in the car, turn up somewhere else for a hole or two. And, you know, I didn't want to be that captain and have a snapshot idea. I didn't see my role. Like I said earlier, I saw my role. The players got in the golf course. My job was done. Off you go, guys. I've kind of wound them up. I've given them the ideas. I've given them the clarity, given them simplicity. Now go. Um, so that was for me to step back and, and plan the next roll of the dice. So, so what I had was one captain following each of the games uh, and me on the radio. Uh, and then they would be reporting back to me. To be quite honest and frank, you didn't see a lot of me on TV. And that's because I watched a lot of it on TV. Yeah. When, when they all went off the first tee, I went into the team room when it was empty at that stage and sat down uh, with Ray Latchford, who was, who was driving a car for me. And the two of us, you know, had a coffee and, and kind of watched it all unfold. And I <laughs> had the radio on. Yeah, and I'm listening to all the feedback from the matches. And, and if something happens, I'm able to go on to Sam and say, Sam, what did you think of that? What, what did you make of that? How's the body language? You know, and, um, So that was the kind of feedback that they were giving me. Um, and then the fifth vice captain was looking after the four players who weren't playing in that session and making sure that they weren't second rate so they could get ready to go out in the afternoon or whatever the case may be. And, uh, and, and that's what it was. And I'll give you an example of it in, in play on, on day two. Lee and Jamie Donaldson had played great the first day and they'd won the match comfortably. Um, and I decided that I was going to put them in against my plan. My plan was they were only going to play, Lee was going to play one, one and one, just like Graham. Um, but I decided they played so well and with a couple of players struggled a bit that I wanted to put them in the next morning to play the next morning. Um, so I put them in, Sam was following the game and they went one down, they went two down, they went three down, they went four down, they got hammered. And my conversations with Sam on the way around were, because I know what golf is like. Sometimes you just get in the wrong side of one down early. You, you, you know, you're forced to go for a shot. It doesn't come off. You go two down. Then they make a birdie or three down. Before you know it, your, your game's over. Um, so my conversations with Sam on the radio were, you know, what's the body language like? Are the caddies still talking? Are the players still talking? Is it just one of those games where the Americans have come out on top and, and played really well, got a good start? And that's what he was saying. Yeah, Paul, look, let's not panic. This is still a good partnership. These guys have just got on the wrong side of a bad start. They made an error. And then the Americans have capitalized with a couple of birdies. And let's not overreact. Now, even though the scoreline says they got hammered, I still put them out in the afternoon um, because the dynamic, you know, Sam's feedback on the dynamic and the body language reading you know, what's in their mind and where they are and where their energy levels are was really important. And then putting them out in the afternoon uh, was key. Um, and, and then it went on and they won comfortably in the afternoon. So, you know, they're the kind of lessons that I learned as a player and learned as a vice captain. It's easy to overreact just by the scoreline and somebody losing the game. Yeah, it's, it's just it's trusting that it's trusting you pick that dynamic, I suppose, to, to, to work. You mentioned about body language and things like that as well, Paul. Were there any examples of where you're like, right, okay, this guy's looking like he's, 
he's losing it, his body language is poor. Did you have to get, were there any examples of you, you sort of having to get one of the captains to step in and maybe have a word or, or do anything different or did you just leave them to it? Uh, no, I mean, the attitude was great. The guys were great. I mean, every one of them was just terrific. I never had any issues. We didn't have to get involved. The caddies were terrific. They're a very important dynamic, the caddies, you know, because they spend more time with the caddies than anybody else. And it's important to make sure the caddies, the caddies are on site because they're in the rear all the time. You've got to have the caddies as energetic as the players. Um, and we didn't have that problem. But to give an example, though, I remember going back, it wasn't in this, it was in the Seve Trophy. And Monty was the captain. Seve was the, was the European captain. We're playing in Slaley Hall. And we were the favourites by a long way. Um, and we went out the first day. We were comfortably the favourites. And we went out the first day and we were behind. Um, the international continental team had played great. We went on our game, even though we had a brilliant team. And we were uh, at least two points behind. Um, and that was the first time I really got involved um, with the other players in front of my peers. And, and, and what I picked up on the previous few days and practice rounds is that we were complacent. We had a great team. Everything was good. And I know Monty was the captain, but I asked Monty in the middle of the meet, you know, at the end of the meeting, you know, when he asked him, he got something to say on the, on the night of the first day. I said, yeah. And I was really animated. I really, I, got, I was so, so upset with, with where we were and how we could lose this and how complacent we were. And, and, I, and I was really tough on everybody in that team room saying their attitude is pathetic. There's no wonder we're, we're only two, we're two points behind or whatever we were. We're lucky we shouldn't be more. We think we can just roll these guys over. We got to have a different attitude tomorrow. And I, I went off on one. And uh, everybody stunned everybody into kind of silence. I kind of stunned myself a little bit too. This was the first time I'd ever done it. Um, and, you know, we went out the next day and we played well and then we played well in the singles and went on to win comfortably. But that was the first time that I, I got quite heated. Um, but I didn't have to deal with it at the Ryder Cup. It obviously worked though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it did work. Yeah, it did work. And Mon Monty thanked me afterwards. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I said, sorry, I didn't want to extend, but I, I just could read the writing on the wall. I could read. It was, you know, when I said earlier about having a really good atmosphere in the team room and everybody having fun. You know, that can also be a dangerous place because you got to get the balance. Like I said, there's got to be a time when the punch comes in as well, too. And, and, and you know, the captain has to have that, but then he has to rein it in at the right time yeah. and give clarity and, and, and then move forward. And, and, and I just felt that we were a little bit happy with ourselves as good players uh, at that time. <laughs> we had to change our attitude. I wish I was in that room. Yeah. I'd like to be in that room. Those are the moments you want to witness. Hi, everyone. Andy here. Just letting you know about something that we've created just for you. MeAndMyGolf.com is our membership platform that we believe is the best resource out there to improve your golf. And one of the questions that we get asked all the time is what's the difference between YouTube and the website? And the main difference being is that sometimes people can get lost in content on YouTube and not really having a clear structure or plan of where to go. So we wanted to create something that was, was really going to help golfers. We've got over a thousand uh, coaching videos on there, but our main thing or main feature on there are the coaching plans and we've seen some amazing results from these plans and these are basically carefully designed plans on all areas of the game so you don't have to think or worry about what to do we tell you exactly what to practice each week and whether you're looking to break a certain score fix a slice improve your putting or short game we have a plan that will suit you we're even staggered at some of the results that golfers are getting from these as well and we even have a private Facebook group where all of our members go and share experiences and support each other. Real nice place, positive place to be. And we'd love to see you over there and have the chance to help you with your game. So make sure you head over to meandmygolf.com and check out your free trial with no obligations to join. Check it out and see if you can find a plan and become a part of this amazing community. I mean, we could talk about team game with you all, all, all day long because it is, you know, you've done, you've done so well with it. But you as a competitor, you know, obviously we play with you. We've seen what you're, you know, what you're, what you're good at and we, we know how good you are as a player. But what would you say your greatest strength was as a player? And for those who are listening, how did you condition and train it? So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of relatable to many people who'd be listening in on this podcast because... I don't see myself anyway talented as a golfer. Um, uh, I see myself as a guy who's got there with ambition and hard work. The game has never come easy to me. You know, something I, you know, you know, a line that I use is, you know, what's the definition of talent? Talent is something that comes easy to you. Uh, golf has never come easy to me. No dimension of the game. Putting never came easy. Chipping never came easy. Iron play, driving, distance, 
the mental side, nothing ever came easy to me. Um, and the captaincy, ironically, did. You know, I found a captaincy, that the two that I did in the Seve Trophy, as well as the vice cap, two vice captaincies before I became Ryder Cup captain. I really enjoyed those and, and I could see it and I could read it. I could empathize with what was going on. I had a feeling, I had a sense and, and things came to me that proved to be right in the end a lot quicker and easier than I did as a, than I did as a player. So I got, I, I got to the top of the game and I got to, you know, top 20 in the world through blood and guts and, and putting in the hard work um, and ambition um, more than anything else. And, you know, dragged along with my peers as well too. Lee, Lee and Darren, I was part of the management group with them. So a lot of practice rounds with them, spent a lot of time around them. And the fact that the game, they were so good and the game did come easy to them and they were so brilliant at what they did. It certainly dragged me along. And then Podrick came on the scene as well too. And then Podrick started having success and that dragged me along. So, you know, that, that competitiveness against them, who were my friends, that, that certainly dragged me along. Um, and, and yeah, it was blood and guts more than anything else. Um, what was my strength? You asked me what I learned to do was work the ball more than anything. I, I was good. I was comfortable left to right and right to left um, and low and high. Um, those four ball flights were, were something I worked the ball a lot. Um, I love golf courses where you could bounce it around it. Um, I love golf courses where course management was important. Um, you know, I was a good putter from short distance. Um, and um, But nothing came easy. You know, it was always a battle. I never turned up at a tournament and thought, man, I've never played better. This game is amazing. I'm just in such a great place. I'm going to win this week. Never. Um, I've had rounds like that, but I've never turned up at a place thinking I'm the best guy here. Uh, we're going to win. Um, and ironically, you know, as Ryder Cup captain, I, I really felt comfortable um, and um, very, very confident uh, going into that uh, into that captaincy. And I was going against Tom Watson, but um, I, I really felt confident that that I knew what I was doing and I knew what strategies we wanted and how to put the team together. And importantly, I had so much trust in the quality of players I had behind me that I really felt that uh, we were going to win. But of course, I didn't want to let that over in the media or show it to the players and become complacent. But inside, I had a lot more confidence that week than I ever had at any week I turned up as a player. Yeah. You, men you mentioned there about, you were a great one, great one. You, you mentioned there about shaping the golf ball, how you were good at that. Is that is that something that you think happened as obviously there's the potential of the links background potentially in Ireland, obviously, and the course that you may play out there. But was it a little bit to do with the length as well? The fact that perhaps you weren't the longest hitter there, so you had to be able to work a golf ball into a flag or into a fairway as opposed to flying corners of dog legs or, you know, pitching it all the way there. Yeah, it, it was pretty much. Yeah, it was that. Um, and. You know, my two best years on tour, I think I came second in the money list and fifth or sixth in the money list. And when I came fifth or sixth in the money list, a lot of consistency and win, I played the whole year right to left. I never tried to hit a fade. And then when I came second in the money list, 2005 and winning a Valorama, I played a fade all year long. Never did anything else. And it's why I played. I'd never had a good record around Valorama before. But when that year, because I was fading the ball, I went there and all of a sudden the golf course was a lot easier because I was fading. And you look at Monty, you look at Sergio, guys who fade the ball comfortably, Lee, you know, they've all played well around Valorama. Valorama is very much a fader's, a fader's shape shot. And um, so again, going back to simplicity, when I saw the game simple and I didn't complicate it um, and I was conscious that, you know, I didn't play like Bubba. I was nowhere near like Bubba. I was a, I was a very, very mini version of Bubba with <laughs> small shapes, um, but it wasn't certainly a big one of this or a big one of that. I certainly didn't have that skill, but it, it was it was more grit and determin determination than anything else, and and uh, and, and strategy, you know, um, you know, realizing where I could miss it and where I couldn't, and giving myself a chance to get up and down. Um, but yeah, you know, and when I got on really difficult golf courses, um, you know, I felt I had a chance because it wasn't a shootout. Um, golf courses that were tough uh, suited me, uh, and you know, Valderrama's obviously my biggest win was was a good example of that. One of the toughest, for sure, one of the toughest. So you mentioned earlier as well about if you had your time again on some of the things that you've sort of accrued along your journey as a great tournament golfer and Ryder Cup player. But what, what would you say that you've done in your career that you definitely would redo again? Has there been anything that you've done that you've done for maybe a year or two that really sort of harmed your game? Yeah, chasing distance. A bit like what Rory was talking about last week. Absolutely, yeah, you know. I was okay in distance. I was probably 50 to 60th out of the 150 guys who would play, you know, so I was longer than average, but I wasn't short. Um, um, but here's what's interesting in that game, the era that I play compared to now, is that, you know, the longest in the game 
um, would have been John Daly. And I played a lot with John and maybe 20 yards outside me, maybe 25 maximum, you know, two clubs. Whereas now I played at Rory in exhibition last year in, in a dare manner, two years ago now, 18 months ago. And, um, uh, you know, I'm hitting the ball as far now as if not further than I was when I was on tour. Um, and the first hole in a dare manner, I mean, I hit a pretty good drive and I hit four iron in mm-hmm. over water, a stream in front of it, pin tucked in the left, uh, I, a pretty good drive, four iron, uh, and Rory hit driver at three quarter wedge. So <laughs> he was 50 outside me. Um, you know, I'd seen him play and I'd seen him obviously in right a cup. You, you watch what they're doing, but it's only when you relate your game beside it that you really get a sense of how far they hit the ball. Um, so obviously the golf course was very different when, uh, you know, you're hitting the ball 50 yards further, you're hitting three quarter wedge into that first <laughs> hole in a dare manner. And then you quantify that up by, you know, the 14 par fours and par fives. Um, so again, if I was doing it again, my, my what I would say was, uh, I lost focus, uh, you know, what, let, let me answer the question in a better way by saying the one guy, if I was doing my career again, I would follow his template of how he came, went about his business and his game was Monty. Mm. Monty kept it simple. All that stuff I'm talking earlier about simplicity, clarity, not overcomplicating it. Monty had that. The game never got complicated in Monty's head. A bit like DJ. Um you know, he, he just saw the game one dimensionally left to right, never tried to be something different, never chased distance, um, never over practiced, never left it all on the practice ground because he overworked, um, understood the value of being a competitor, worked a lot in his own mind in his own hotel room and on being a competitor and where he was in the tournament, what he had to do and setting out game plans and strategies. I learned all this from Monty when you're sitting beside him in a Ryder Cup game. You see how they think, you, you know, you when you're sitting as part of the same guy, you don't see it when you're beating against them yeah. but when you're part of a Ryder Cup team you'd see a different side to players and, and certainly that's what I got from Monty uh, he was a strategist he was a competitor um, and um, that's the template I would have followed more keeping it simple maybe one dimensional and not leaving too much on the practice ground because I practiced a lot um, and making sure that when the you know when, when the gun went off on Thursday morning that you know I was totally engaged and my heart was on fire and I was going to hit that ground run yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. There's nothing to anyone listening to this here. I think is a lot of people will overcomplicate things, no matter what level of the game you're at. And I think that's just great words to hear from you. And speak, we have to mention and, and talk a little bit about your relationship with obviously Bob Torrance, so who's a, a coach of yours for a long time. Um, how important was he to your game? And what are some of the things that he really sort of set home to you that you, you still work on today? So where Bob was great with me, and I, I, I came on tour in 1991. 92 was my first year. I got tour school in 91. 92 was my first year. And then I started working with Bob probably 94, maybe 93. So not, not long and right through my career. Where, what was great about Bob was, and you know, when he died about four or five years ago, what, what was great was when he died, from when he started to when he died, he never changed what we were working on. You know, he never thought, okay, now you've done that. Now we're going to do this. You know, it was, no, no, this, we're going to just get better. And we're going to get better. And we're going to get better at this. Um, he saw me as very much like Ben Hogan, uh, a one plane swinger. Um, and the fundamentals that he taught me were very, very different than the fundamentals he taught Podrick. You know, Podrick, he used to say, you know, I'm Ben Hogan, Podrick, Sam Snead. Um, and, and, and he had different things going on with Podrick with a higher, higher arms and more of a drop. Whereas with, um, with, with me, it was very much about the rotation. It was about the connection. It was about the connection between the arms and the body rotating together in harmony and sequence. Uh, more than anything, that's what it was. Um, it was about ball position. Um, it was about making sure the club came back enough on the inside that I didn't get it up out here um, and, and, and stuff like that. You know, he liked I was a little bit short at the top. He liked that. He didn't want to change that as much as people would say, oh, yeah, you know, old fashioned it would have been, oh, yeah, you look at his club base at the top and he's, you know, wide open or he's dead square and we get, you know, I'm shot. And, and often I will go down and try to say, Bob, I need to change my, you know, I, I would hear it or I wouldn't be playing well. And, uh, you know, I hear a commentator say it and then I go to Bob and I say, Bob, I need to change my club face. No, I'm playing rubbish. My club face is too short. And, and Eddie would not let me do that. And now looking back on it, he was absolutely right. How many players play with club, short club faces now at the time? So, and again, going back to the thing that, that probably 
more than anything with Bob that I love the most about was not just his IQ and what he did in terms of the golf game, but I never got bored of his company. He was the most fun people I've ever spent time with in my life. Everybody who's worked with him will tell you the same, you know, up into his seventies and he had the wit and the one liners that would just drop you dead. Um, <laughs> you know, a cigarette hanging out of the mouth, a flat cap. Um, and uh, it, it was just so much about him. Um, that was just so, so brilliant. Um, I really miss him. I miss his character. I miss his fun. I miss going to see him up in Largs. I miss him being on tour. Uh, I miss him. You know, he didn't sugarcoat anything. You know, if you had an opinion on a player, a player swing, he'd tell you with one word. And you can imagine what that word would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, he was fun. I mean, the, the guy I look at now in the modern game, that I think if Bob was alive, um, Bob never saw this guy play, and if Bob was alive, he would go. That's how you swing a golf club, is John Ram. Uh, I, I think he's got such a fabulous golf swing, um, so powerful. Um, and you know, Bob always wants you to hit the ball hard. It's one of the you know when I started working with Bob, I was shorter than I ended up becoming because he made me hit the ball hard. Even a nine iron, his view was don't feather it in there unless you're trying to play a shot into the wind or something. Never feather it. You got to hit it. You got to hit the ball. You got to compress it. You got to drive it. You know, it's, it was all about ball, ball flight with him. Um, so yeah, he was a great character, and I, you know, a guy I got to know as well too. After Bob passed away, and the guy I spent more and more time with was John Jacobs. And again, you know, I was so lucky to have two of those guys kind of overseeing my game. And you know, uh, I've also you know spent a bit of time with Nick Bradley, who I think is really bright on the golf swing too, and, and can think on so many different levels. Uh, but John Jacobs, I mean, what what an education I got from him as well too. I. I remember in a place called Queenwood, just, just outside London. And I used to drive down to John's house regularly, uh, pick him up in Southampton, um, have the chat with him the whole way up in the car. I used to, I used to tape what we were talking about. He, he knew about it. And I used to put it on my iPhone and put it in the voice notes. So, you know, I've got hours and hours and hours of our conversations in the way up about different players and different golf swings and how he saw my swing and what he wanted to do. And, it's, it's interesting because you can hear the car on the motorway and the, you know, going past, but at the same time, you can hear John's voice coming through of, of different things that he taught about my gospel. And of course, so many of them correlated to what Bob said. Um, and, and, you know, so I was very, very lucky. Those old style coaches uh, were really impressionable to me. And, you know, you can call Nick probably a, um, um, uh, a modern style coach now. And if I do have an issue with my game, he will be a guy I'd send a video to and say, what do you think? Yeah. Do you know what the beauty about that as well? with people like Bob Torrance and um, John Jacobs is they didn't have the track mans and they weren't really, it was very much about the ball flight. And I know in today's game with all the technology, it's so easy to go down in the rabbit hole of trying to make things look a certain way and actually try and get numbers to be a certain way. But with those guys, it was really about, well, what's the ball doing? What's the adjustment we need to make in order to actually get the right performance as opposed to what does my swing look like? How can I make it look better? And I think there's a big message there to the golfers listening to this. And we always talk about this first, don't we? People will send us a video and say, what's wrong with my swing? Hmm. And we're like, well, what's the ball doing? <laughs> we need to know what the ball's doing before we can comment on that. And I think it's just a brilliant message. And those guys were masters of changing the ball flight, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what it's about. That's, that's the, you just nailed it all there, right there. I couldn't, really? I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's absolutely yeah. right. Okay, right. We're almost finished. We've got a quick fire before, well, in a moment. Uh, what's your focus now then, Paul? Sort of what's the, what's the future look like the next five years, 10 years for you? Obviously, you're into TV and things like that and a little bit of tournament golf maybe? Yeah, I still love to play. I'm probably as passionate and love to play the game as much now as ever. Um, you know, I've got a lovely place out here in Florida, private range is 30 yards away. I can't wait now till this is over so I go out, have a shower and go and eat some balls. <laughs> Um, uh, so I love to play golf. I'm going to play some of the Legends Tour in, in Europe this year, hopefully five or six. The senior British Open is on in Sunningdale. Obviously, of course, home course I know very well. Looking forward to that. I want to make sure I'm ready for that and prepared for that. I'm going to play a couple on the Champions Tour as well. I got invites to playing those. I'm playing in Houston in a few weeks' time. Looking forward to that. Uh, so I still love to play. But golf is kind of 15% of what I do now. I do 11 events a year for Sky. They work out at normally one a month. Uh, I, do, I do the bigger events, the, the World Golf events, the majors, TPC, Ryder Cup, uh, Wentworth. Um, so I, I've got one a month pretty much for Sky uh, during the year. Um, I've got lots of business interests going on. A couple of companies that I'm involved in, a company called Illegal, which has been really successful in terms of 
uh, golf club membership, uh, elite golf club membership. Um, it's doing great. And I'm on the board and a shareholder in that. It's doing great. And, uh, good to be involved in that. And then I'm uh, hugely involved. I'm becoming increasingly more and more involved with the European Tour and with the Ryder Cup. Um, as I say in football, I've moved upstairs. Um, so I'm on the board of, uh, of the Ryder Cup, you know, on, on the European Tour and, and on the on the steering committee for the Ryder Cup as well, too, and, and working with guys like Richard Scudamore and Ian Ritchie and Damon Buffini, you know, unbelievably bright people from the world of sport and business. And, and to be on the board with them people and learn and listen from them is hugely um, um, important for me and, and educational for me. So I'm really enjoying that. Obviously, we've got lots going on with the European Tour, not just at the moment with the lockdown and with the restrictions on travelling and trying to put a schedule together. But the bigger good picture, there's so many great things going on with the European Tour is that you know, we've got uh, this new alignment uh, with the PGA Tour uh, in America. And um, that's going to become more and more of a factor in world golf in the coming years. And, you know, I'll be part of, of chiseling that out and what it's going to look like and uh, how we're going to combine the two tours and, and how we're going to be separate at the same time. There's going to be a little bit of coming together, but also still remain somewhat independent. So I'm looking forward to chiseling that out. Obviously, the Ryder Cup's going from strength to strength and, and um you know, it's it's not not my eyes. I'm not just looking at now from a player's point of view and a captain's point of view. I'm looking at it from a commercial point of view, uh, uh, and that's obviously very important to the success of the European Tour. The funds from that are hugely important to what we do on the European Tour. Um, and then I, I do a bit of leadership speaking. Um, I've written a book uh, uh, on, on leadership at London Business School. They made me an executive fellow, and, and I did 18 principles of leadership that I learned uh, in my years of, of being involved um, at elite elite sport and elite events like the Ryder Cup. Um, and um, I've a lot of, uh, you know, I do a lot of leadership talks in the back of that and conferences, you know, somebody might have a conference and they'd have a number of guest speakers and I might be included in one of those guest speakers. So I quite enjoy that, putting that together and talking about what my learnings are um, with, uh, with leadership and, and what it needs to be. So, so, you're, so you're, not much going on there. <laughs> so not much going on there. Well, do you know what? It's, um, you know, we, we, we were talking before, we love the commentary that you do on on Sky, it's uh, it's great to listen to, and you've obviously got all the experience and, and so much knowledge there. It's uh, you're doing an amazing job for that as well. So, um, okay, quick fire then before we let you go and share and get on the golf course. If you could have one shot back in your career, what would it be? Uh, one shot back in my career, what would it be? Uh, it would be the it would be the seventeenth hole. I forget the name of the golf course down in Spain. Um, I was going head-to-head -head playing with a Lazabal in the last round. Um, I was two shots ahead. Um, I was playing great. Uh, tournament was pretty much won. Um, I was totally in control of what I was doing. It was a long par five over a ravine, pin on the back left. And I was between a three, wood and a, a three iron and a five wood. And I decided I was feeling so good. I was just going to feather a, three, a, a five wood in there. And I pulled it, hit the bank, rolled down into a rock, unplayable lie. Ended up being in a playoff with him, losing the playoff. Um, and that was a time to, I had the tournament won. I'd, 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 I'd won it. It was a question out just going over the finishing line. And it was a three iron all day long, front right. Even if it was, a, in fact, I think I was three shots ahead. And if, if I had it been front right, even a four, I'm still winning the tournament. But don't take a five or a six, which would I thought. Um, that would be the shot I came back. And ironically then, it just shows you that every cloud is a silver lining because ironically, two weeks later, Alazabal won the Masters uh, and he yeah. put down the confidence he got from beating me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that then, Paul, yeah. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Right, we've got, um, what are three truths about golf? Oh boy, you gotta be good. You've gotta be good. That's the bottom line. I remember Nick Fallow saying that to me when I played at practice round with him right after he won uh, the Masters, beating Greg Norman. I played with him in the Oxfordshire. And going down the ferry, I asked him, I didn't know him that well at that time. And I was asking him questions. I said, you know, you're amazing mentally, um, Nick. You know, what, what do you do mentally? Do you work with somebody? You know, how do you see the mental game? I was starting to get more and more interested in the mental side of the game. And, and he looked at me really casually. It was, it was a dismissive answer, but I didn't take it that way. And now I understand the importance of it. He said, no, he said, you know, in this game, you just got to be good. And I thought that that's so true because when I'm playing well, I'm good. I know I'm good. I've got it. You know, I've got the feel. I've got a five iron and I know I've got the feel. I'm good. Um, and, and I think that's what practice should be about. It's about getting good. Sometimes, again, look at the, remember they said the big thing, be the big thing. Make sure, get good. 
You know, don't look for some, look for the big thing, which is, can I hit a five iron? Am I comfortable under any circumstances hitting a five iron or a seven iron from here to there to that big target? Yeah, I am. I'm good. You know, so, so, so you got to be good at this game. You can't, you, you don't get, you can't fudge it. Um, I think uh, you got to have fun. We got to put that into it. Um, and the third thing is, and you guys are very, and I'm going to give you guys a push here because you've got to have good mentors. Right? I was very fortunate with good mentors. And, and I know a lot of what you guys do with our work with TaylorMade over the years. And I've seen what you've done with Aaron. I listened to him. I played with him. I played in the Welsh Open last year. I watched him, what he's done. I listened to what he's talking about and what he's learning from you guys and the respect he has for you. So, so that mentorship is really important. And you guys have a very important role in his development as a player. Um, that's a big responsibility. Um, but I think all players need to have, and, and I don't mean you know, a fitness trainer or a golf coach uh, necessarily. I'm talking about mentors. Um, you know, it's really important to have somebody who cuts away the wood from the trees and gives you the simplicity. You know what? Yeah, I see that marginal gain, marginal gain. Let's not, let's not get too caught up in that. Let's remember the reason why you'd, you'd missed the cut was that. You know, you average 32 putts the first day and 34 the second day. You can talk all you want about your pull hooks and your ball out of bounds and all that, but wait a minute. If you had had 30 putts on both days, you'd have won um, or, or you would have qualified or whatever the case may be. And, and to have somebody who's going to give it to you hard that way is really important for development of every, every young player, every young player coming through in particular. I know you work a lot with young people and it's really important. And, and, and it's often better as much as the parent can help, but it's better to have maybe some independence as well. Yeah, love it. Brilliant. Okay, uh, your biggest influence in your career? I think my dad. I, you know, my dad was a good golfer. He was a one handicap, um, and uh, he loves sport. And you know, we've similar interests in everything I do. He he loves doing too. Um, so he's been a big, always behind me, never overburdening in any way. Stood back. Uh, he was a stand back kind of thing, but he would certainly give you advice if you asked for it. Um, and just a kind of uh, you know always there um uh and then when it comes to my golf i, you, you, I gotta say bob torrance you know bob torrance has been a, a massive influence on on my uh on on my golf massive influence uh and and, and what i became as a golfer right. uh, because he kept it simple and he made it fun and he was and this is a real important key his theories were grounded on tried trusted proven fundamentals yeah it was not a new way of swinging or a new ideas mm -hmm. it was something like i said earlier about the Ryder cup i'm a great believer in what's happened in the past you bring it forward you make it better you move it forward you don't have to reinvent the wheel mm -hmm. fundamentals are the key fundamentals that are, that are that are key to your game because your fundamentals are very different than than your fundamentals and your fundamentals we're all going to have different fundamentals so identifying what fundamentals are important to your game your swing your character and then just getting better at that. And then I go back to Monty again. That's what impressed me so much in hindsight about Monty's career. Brilliant. I think the theme of this podcast is keep things simple. Yeah, I think keep it simple. You can hear that so many times, Paul. <laughs> the title has been made already. <laughs> um, the funniest moment as a player or broadcaster? It, it must involve Edinburgh Jimmy. <laughs> You'd have to think. Yeah. But you, you know Edinburgh Jimmy. He, he gave you plenty of stick over the years. But... Uh, no, I, I can't repeat any of those. That's the problem. I can't repeat. We've heard one. You, can't, you definitely can't repeat that one. No, there's, there, we're, when we're having a beer, we can talk about it, but <laughs> not on the podcast. But the funniest was, and you might you see this on YouTube, anybody wants to look it up. And I was playing in the tournament down in Australia. And we're playing in a place called La Perouse, um, just outside of Sydney. Great golf course, Lynx golf course on the sea. Uh, brilliant golf course. And I, I played in the I didn't in the second day. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm lying in the bed, got the TV on and the golf is on. I'm watching the golf and it's blowing a gale in the afternoon. And there's one part three. I might've been the sixth over the corner of the ocean, orange cliff, green's got a big slope on it. And Mike Clayton, who I knew really well, uh, great character. He might come across him now in the game as well too. Just great stuff down Australia, real strong views and golf architecture in particular, which is what he does mostly now. And, and he's got this putt from six feet and it's a, it was a really quick six foot footer downhill across the, across the hill. And, and as it got to the hole, the wind just grabbed it and kind of moved it away. And, and he, he put his arms in the air and he went to throw his putter up 
but instead of throwing it up here, he threw it up towards the hole and the wind kind of took it. And now, now we realize the putter is going to struggle to catch it. So he leans over to catch it and he can't catch it. He ends up face down on the green. The putter comes down. The putter hits the ball. The ball goes shooting all over the place. And he's lying on the ground face down. And he looks up to his playing partner and he goes, how many shot penalty is that? <laughs> <laughs> and it was all live on TV. You still oh. see it on YouTube now. Look it up. It, it, it's so, and if you know, uh, if you know Mike Clayton, that's what makes it even funnier. Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. I, I, I don't know whether I've seen that, but I'm definitely going to be looking for it later. Mm. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Paul, look, I mean, amazing. Obviously, it's always great speaking to you. You've been very generous to us over the years as well. So, really appreciate that. And we look forward to obviously seeing you soon. But is, is there anything else going on at the moment that you want to talk about, promote, or anything coming up? I mean, the book that you've got, is that something you've published or is that? Yeah, you can get it through my website. Um, it's it's something it's something I self-published. I didn't do it with a publisher. I wanted to have control of myself. Um, it was um, a lot of it is images. I'm, I'm very much a um, um, uh, a visual person, um, and and you know a lot of the challenges that that we faced in Glen Eagles are represented with really strong images, photoshopping them. Um, Nick Bradley helped me with those. We did some amazing stuff um, that represented the challenges and how we were going to do them with words underneath and poignant messages. I'm going to put them in the locker room to the you know, all over, basically inside our, 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 our inner sanctum of, of, of Glen Eagles. Um, so the book has got over 100 images in it. And the images, and it's, it's, it's an easy to read book. Don't worry, guys. It's not an intellectual book. It's a book that's got, uh, it's a coffee table book, big words on it. Yeah. Not too, the sentences <laughs> are not too long. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the chapters are all very short, you know, two or three pages. But a lot of images are represented, over 100 images represented. But the key is the images represent what I'm talking about in the text. So I'm a great believer in, in, in communicating not just through words, but you communicate it through a visual as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's done OK. You know, it's, it's, it's not not a book that I'm expecting to make any money on. If I make if I break even, it's going to be great. But it's mostly about um, I did it with Bit London Business School. They wrote the forward on it. They were pushing me to do something on leadership. And, and I did it. And, and it's 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 just a nice to collate all my ideas down into 18 principles. So um, now, I, listen, I mean, I. You know, I'm lucky I've, I've got great partners and ambassadorships with that I still have now that I had when I was playing, you know, and Rolex and BMW and, and, and TaylorMade in particular come to mind who I started when I went over to college in America uh, for my last two years. Uh, I, I ended up in a place called San Diego, uh, down the very bottom left hand corner of America, right on the border with Mexico, right on the coast, Torrey Pines, where the US Open is this year. And our coach was a guy called Gordon Severson. And he was one of the guys that started the TaylorMade company with a guy called Gary Adams. And he was one of the founding guys in there. And when I went there in 89, TaylorMade was a very, very young and small company. I mean, the company could nearly fit inside this room here. It was so small. And to see them grow and me still be with them all these years down the road, uh, it's been a great success story. And I remember Gary Adams saying to me once um, in his office, he said, Paul, you know, my goal with TaylorMade, unfortunately he passed away a short time after this, but he said, my, my goal with TaylorMade is that I want the best players on tour to use our clubs by choice, not because we pay them. And that's exactly where it's at now. TaylorMade played very few players on tour. Very few get paid anywhere in the world, in fact, even in America. But a lot of them use it by choice. So, you know, his vision has come true. Um, and, you know, it's a very successful company, as we know now. And, and you know, I believe, I believe they're going to go from strength to strength. The driver they have out at the moment, I think, is, is the best driver they've ever come out with. Um, I really do. And what I love about it is you, you, you play. I've always liked loft and I've always liked the club faces slightly open. So remember when I used to get fitted, they used to have 10 or 15 cranking these drivers to get the face looking open. Um, I hate to see a shut, a shut face. So what I like about, you know, about the new driver is the fact, you know, the same is that it is, uh, you know, it has to be played with a little bit more loft than what we would normally be used playing. That's when you get the most out of it. So I'm using a 10 and a half degree loft now, whereas I've always been eight and a half to nine before. Um, and I'm probably driving a ball better than I've ever done. And, and, uh, and you know, pretty straight, but also longer. Yeah, well, we, we had ours back in November, but obviously with lockdown in the UK, I think I've used it about five times since. <laughs> so looking forward for the 29th of March to be able to get out of there and use it. Yeah. Look, Paul, you know what, it's awesome, as I said earlier. You know, thanks so much for your time. We look forward to seeing you. We may well be at the PGA Championship. Aaron's going to be there, so hopefully we'll be there. It'd be good to catch up and have, good. have a beer if you You there. can tell us some more stories over have a beer then. We'll have the real stories. I want then. to hear the real stories. <laughs>
I'll, yeah, I'll tell you the Edinburgh Jimmy ones. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. We'll do that, guys. I mean, going to Kiva Island's a great course. I, I won the World Cup there with Podrick in 1997 for Ireland. Uh, and uh, it, it's a great golf course, windswept. Um, a lot of course knowledge involved in it. We all remember the war on the shore in 1991. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant golf course. I think you really enjoy a bit of a sea breeze coming in there. Rory won the PGA when it was played there before. Uh, I think, you know, I'm looking for a European win around that Lynx style of golf course. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, interesting. We, we, we've got one for you if you want it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's Aaron. Yeah. Paul, again, thanks All right, guys. for your time. Enjoy, Appreciate enjoy it. Keep up the good work. Thank you yeah, so much. Keep up the good work. Well done. Great Appreciate stuff you do. Well done. Thanks, Paul. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you found some great value in it. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Also, let us know your feedback by leaving us a rating or review over on iTunes. And remember, if you want to go deeper and really improve your game, head over to meandmygolf.com and start your free trial and check out one of the many plans that are seeing incredible results. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to speaking to you next week.